Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today, we have some new co-hosts to introduce to you. So we've got three brand new co-hosts, but you might recognize the name if you've been listening to our episodes in the past. So um, let's start out with just a brief introduction and then we'll get into more details. So uh, let's go start with Christian. Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, Sean. Uh, and hi, dear listeners. Uh, excited to be on board. My name is Christian Menz. Um, I live in Munich in Germany. Uh, I do mostly uh, web stuff and web application security for the latter topic. I've been a guest um, to Adventures in .NET before. I am a uh, Microsoft MVP uh, since 2004 for, well, I think originally ASP.NET, but now it's just developer technologies. Uh, and yeah, uh, love, love doing uh, web applications and work with a lot of companies. Um, and uh, I'm always uh, excited to see what's, uh, what's up uh, in, in .NET world and what's up in the web world. And I hope to, be, to, to learn a lot of things uh, during uh, the following months. Yeah, on that's great. Good, good. Okay, Adam, you want to go next? Uh, sure thing. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be here. And I also already mentioned I was a guest once. Uh, I'm a software engineer with like 15 years of experience nowadays, done a lot of stuff back and front and other various technologies, but I was also doing like uh, devrel work, tons of public speaking, um, actually also a book writer, wrote one's, one book about .NET platform and the other book about like applied maths. Um, always learning, always like enjoying um, debugging stuff, learning everything behind the scenes and going very very deep low level. Uh, so looking forward to what new I can learn here. And I hope you enjoy me uh, being on this podcast. <laughs> good, good. All right, Mark, I think you're uh, you're in a special group. I think you run the show a couple times. <laughs> yeah, I'm in a special group. <laughs> it's the special group. That's the one I'm in. Uh, kids, my name is Mark Miller. I've been writing code for about as long as I've been alive, I think, and it's a pretty long time. I'm a, I think I'm, I'm, I'm passing four decades of code writing, uh, and uh, and it's been kind of crazy. I I've started with, I remember punching in like for, uh, hexadecimal code for a Z80, and my monitor was a LED display, and I remember you know in a I was I was in high school at the time, but I was taking college course. It was a college course I was taking. And I remember they called me the whiz kid because I was creating a, a video game with my LED display, you know, by having the the little, uh, the parts of the LED display chase the lights around, that sort of thing. I was working on that. And now we're at a point where essentially the robot overlords are ready to say, hi, Mark, go sit in the corner now. We got this, <laughs> right? So that's how long I've been coding. Uh, I work at Dev Express. I am uh, 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 leading the uh, the Code Rush team. Uh, Code Rush is a developer tool. I've been actually focused and working on developer tools for probably about 30 years, 20 to 30 years I've been focused on that, uh, as well as good design, that sort of thing. So I'm like, you know, I'm fascinated uh, about the how do we make the best possible interface, the best possible um, UI, so that the the people that are using this can get what they need to done with the, the least amount of effort, the least amount of thought, that sort of thing. I'm just that process is an obsession for me, 
And uh, I'm also, like the, like the other hosts, I'm totally here to learn because I accomplish everything using brute force and ignorance. Those are my those are my tactics, and that's how I get everything done. And so I'm here to totally learn uh, from our from our future guests and the co-hosts as well. All right, cool. That's kind of funny, Mark. That you mentioned uh, WizKid because uh, one of my best friends and actually one of my groomsmen in my wedding um, back in the days, he was uh, a writer on an Apple II hacking magazine. And his column was called WizKid. So nice. that was kind of funny there. So That's I, awesome. Yeah, I've been uh, been doing programming about as long as you. I think I wrote my first program probably 1980. And it was uh, on a TRS-80 uh, computer. Yeah. And, you know, we had, we had black and white televisions as our monitors and cassette tape drives and things like that. And yeah. Yeah, we did the. I did all those things too. I was there. I had a TRS eighty. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And we're still here, kids. Yeah, <laughs> trying yep. to make us leave. You can't do it. Yeah. So my, uh, I, I've told the story in a few times about the first computer I actually owned was a TRS eighty color computer that had four K of RAM. So yeah. I wrote a Hangman game, and I could only fit twenty five words in it before it started crashing on me. Yeah, I wrote. Super blockout, I think is what I called it. It was like breakout, but it had a square in the middle. And when you move the paddles one way, they everything went clockwise. The paddles, the four paddles went clockwise to the other side. So it was this kind of like really cerebral game that nobody wanted to play. There were balls all over the place, you know, br bricks everywhere. Um, and yeah, I remember that same experience thinking it, it was, it took me about like, I, I want to say like about four months of, of exploring before I I got the sense, the really strong sense, that what I wanted to do was beyond the capabilities of the machine, right? Just like you're describing as well, that 4K limit, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. that's that. Yeah, we were we were there. Sean and I were there, kids. <laughs> we'll tell you what it was like back in the days of the dinosaurs. Yeah, and then in high school we finally got some Apple IIs, and so that was all the rage in high school. And then I decided to go on to college and I really wanted to do desktop programming, but there was no such thing in college courses back then. So when I went to college, they, they taught, you know, Fortran, Pascal, COBOL, and C, you know, C++, just C. So that's what yeah. I learned there. And it was all on mainframe type computers and things like that. So, you know. I remember after my first year of college, uh, I'm from the Seattle area, so I went and uh, applied to Microsoft, and this was probably 1985, 1986, and so <laughs> it it took me all day to find where Microsoft was at to go in and fill out an application because I oh you, know, you did it you did it in person well yeah that's how you could, that's how you could do it. So, you know I figured it was you know probably a 20 mile drive from where I, I was at. So I, I drove up there and I, back then you didn't have Google maps or anything like that. So I used the yellow pages. So I just looked up in the yellow pages, what their address was. And so I went to that address and it says, sorry, we have moved. We are now at da 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 da. -da. So I go to wow. that address and it's sorry, we have moved. We're now at da 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 da. -da. Wow. <laughs> and so I finally found them and it's actually where they're the current, campus is in Redmond now but back then I think there was maybe four or five buildings 
and lots of trees yeah. and things like that. So yeah, yeah, it was nowadays. Fun. It's 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 a whole whole infrastructure. It's like 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 Disneyland, right? Uh, so uh, well, at least it was good. Good. It was in Seattle area, not in Albuquerque, right? <laughs> because I think that's where they started initially. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's crazy. I love the, the the yellow pages story you just told because I mean I've I've been in in in, in comparable situations, right? But I mean nowadays, so we're recording this in twenty twenty three, it's it's unimaginable that these things ever happen because we are so so used to having technology at our fingertips, right? And uh, it, it, I I mean just 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 things like Google Maps, right? Or the the other competing um, piece of software. I mean. I, I I so rely on that, right? Um, and when traveling somewhere, I mean, I, I I don't even plan ahead often because I know, hey, I I have a map maps app on my mobile phone, and that will bring me to 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 my to my to a target. Um, I uh, I I will be able to to uh, uh, have uh, order a ride via my mobile phone, right? So I don't have you know to look up the number of whatever the, the taxi provider or the, the the local taxi company no it's just you know i don't have to prepare because when i'm there everything will kind of kind of work out um even, even public transportation i mean uh, when when we are recording this um i'm uh three days away uh before before actually flying um to 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 redmond or, or to seattle and going there and i mean i i, I just I, I i booked this on really short notice uh, because scheduling was a bit tricky, but the 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 amount of 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 time I spent on preparing this is is minimal, right? And I feel kind of bad because that makes me nervous that you know I, I miss something obvious or I'm there and I'm I'm lost or something. But no, it just won't happen. I just will, yeah, and then you know get a ride somehow, and then I'll just be there. And compare this to I think the first time. I personally was was in the United States was I don't know twenty five years ago maybe uh, probably even longer almost thirty years back then you know I prepared travel books uh, I don't I don't remember how I booked a hotel probably I called somewhere in the middle of the night and and, and booked it but nowadays you just go there it's 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 a luxury in a way right. Yeah, it'll get you there, but it might take you on a on a weird path every once in a while. Oh, ab- like, why is it taking absolutely. me this way? Isn't 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 that is the story of the 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 man or the lady who booked a um, a flight to Sydney? And <laughs> I think they they wanted to go to Sydney in Australia, but isn't there also the 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 Sydney written with an I in uh, British Columbia? And so she oh, was yeah. wondering why she was yeah. flying to the west and not to the east. <laughs> I, I remember like when I was in preparatory school and geography class, and we were to provide like geographic coordinates for various cities. One of them was Sydney. So I found yeah. Sydney in the US. And my teacher, she was okay only um, when I was reading those coordinates. But when she realized it's on like the west side, not the, the east side, that was, wow, that's kind of weird. <laughs> I was just looking it up, right, to see whether whether I was I was wrong. So actually, there are several Sydneys with I. One in Montana, one Nebraska. There's one British Columbia. There might be even more, right? So yeah. So yeah, this the, this uh... could happen. This this could still happen. <laughs> it the, it uh, did to uh, me. I like I booked a ticket to I thought to San Jose, California, but oh, it was I not San Jose, ends, California. Yeah. 
No, it's not. But the other San Jose is uh, pretty nice, I've heard. I've never been there, but I mean, Costa Rica, right? So um, Yeah, it's not bad. Well, it's, okay. it's okay. The okay. other parts of Costa Rica are really nice. San Jose itself is a little bit of a mix. It's got, you know, both... It, it does have the airport, at least. So I mean, It does have the airport. I got an airport. I don't know why everybody's upset. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Sydney, BC, you know, it's got some great skiing in the area, but I don't think mm -hmm. the same can be said for Sydney, Australia. Yeah, speaking of this, I remember I was at a conference, speaking at a conference in Sydney, and I booked my ticket so I would arrive, like, within 24 hours of my talk. And they rescheduled my talk without telling me to be two days earlier and I something like that. And I remember I'm like getting on the plane and I'm seeing all these notifications coming up saying, where's Mark? Mark's not at his talk. And I'm like, what? What's going on? I'm about to fly 13 hours to Australia. And, and is my talk all done? And, you know, it, and they're, and, and I'm trying to figure out if I should get off the plane or not. And ultimately we decided that, that, you know, well, I learned that they had rescheduled me uh, essentially without telling me, I believe, uh, or at least without me, me receiving that information. And uh, but they said, we'll 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 do it for the regular time, but in a different room. And you're OK. To, you're good to go. And as I get that, they close the door on the plane and I'm like going to Australia, whether I like it or not. So, Yeah. There's, there's, you know, still some mix-ups that can happen, even with cell phones and and stuff like that, right? Communication, email. What okay, always yes, amuses me uh, with Australia is whenever I go there, like I find that uh, international calls from Australia to the US is for free, but if I want to text someone from the US, I need to pay. I never understand why this way. Like I would expect text to be free and calls to be paid, but it's the opposite when I go there. That's interesting. The, our younger listeners probably keep asking themselves, okay, what, what's a text message? Is that, uh, <laughs> what, what's that? Uh, yeah, it's like a native WhatsApp in your mobile phone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're using native WhatsApp, kids. Don't give us a trouble. Don't yeah. yell at us. <laughs> But on, yeah, the, I'm, I'm... on the same note, like um, I'm from Europe originally, and we never used MMS. So multimedia text messages. But when I went to the US, like, and when I moved there to live, I learned that MMS is like quite popular. Even when you go for like public events or whatever, you register over that. I always believed in Europe that is like a dead standard. No one ever really considered it seriously. But in the US, it's like completely the opposite. So native built-in works like a charm. I think uh, depending on where in Europe you are, um, I think either sending or receiving MMS uh, might might cost a little bit, um, uh, which which may prohibit its use. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if you refuse to install a messaging app uh, on your phone, and uh, if you want to send an image or an emoji, then uh, MMS is is all you got. Yeah, yeah. And I, once I was actually trying to implement this, talking a little bit technical, mm -hmm. like I was super surprised to learn that at least in Android world, there is not like standard API in your mobile phone, send MMS, receive MMS, nothing like this. Every single application we're talking about, like a Google texting application or Signal or whatever, They need to implement that on their own. So this is completely like, even though it's standard, all devices implement it like completely differently and definitely not compatible way. 
So uh, a question, when did we all first get into .NET? Have we all been since the 1.0, 1.1 days? Or are there some of our, you know, Adam, I'm looking at you, even though uh, our guests can't look at it, you know, you, you seem younger. So have you been in it for 20 years? Uh, younger, but still bold, as some of us on this <laughs> call. Uh, my first .NET was actually around time uh, .NET 4, I believe. I mean, I was using .NET 2 as well, but generally it was around 2008, 2009. So .NET 4 was already around, Visual Studio 2010. That was a blast. Uh, but that's when I'm talking about that professionally. Like personally, before getting to the, to the enterprise and the industry, I was doing some older .NETs. I even recall like uh, Visual Studio even before it was called Visual Studio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, professional standard around version four. But, but to make it a little more interesting, I think it was like three, four years ago. And I tried to actually install .NET 1.0 on like Windows 10 to see whether it still works. And yes, it does. Uh, the hardest part uh, to do that was actually to find all the installers, right? All the installation files to get that working up and running. But once when I, uh, I went through that, it was working pretty nice. Don't recommend that though, but still a little bit of history. I mean, if you see how many Windows based applications are still running on Windows 10 or even 11. Well, 11 is a bit harder, but still um, it's, it's the, the backwards compatibility is it's quite amazing actually. Yeah, I started, I started early on. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I, I did, uh, or I focused on, on web technologies and I did that early on. Uh, and so um, if, if, if you look at the, uh, the technologies uh, or, the, or the server technologies around these days, I think the market leader is uh, PHP and then um, second place is uh, ASP.NET Core. Um, and, and others follow, uh, which we won't name here, of course. Um, and uh, PHP and the predecessor of uh, ASP.NET, uh, ASP, Active Server Pages, they are from the same year, from 1996. And uh, I started working with both early on, right? Um, and uh, I mean, they're, they're in, in, in the beginnings, they actually were quite similar. But then eventually ASP stopped evolving uh, and PHP ate their lunch. Um, and then I was, uh, because I always want to have like one alternative, uh, I always try to use technologies uh, that, that are mainstream because then it's easier to build a team, right? It's easier to find, find help, uh, information, documentation. Uh, but I still wanted, you know, to have a look at the top two in the market. Um, so um, when the first beta of .NET came out in, uh, I think, 2000, was it 2000? Um, I, I, of course, looked at it and I was, uh, I, I was super disappointed, right? Uh, also when then .NET 1.0 came out, also when 1.1 came out, because from a web perspective, that was, I don't want to say embarrassing, but it was in an infant stage. I, I still remember that um, back in the days, they, they had this idea that the, the web framework was kind of deciding what kind of browser the, the client was using. Um, and there were kind of two types of browsers. Um, I think one once was I don't know if it was the the the, uh, the the term they were using, but I think it was something like upscale browser or, or not. There was only one upscale browser according to to ASP.NET. Um, you can all guess which browser that was, and the browsers that had a significant market share and were maybe arguably better um, 
they they were considered not upscale browsers, so they got like a limited feature set. Things were rendered differently. It it was a mess. It was a mess. And I mean, I probably wouldn't be sitting here if they didn't change gears for the 2.0 release of, of ASP.NET and the .NET Framework, because then they made it cross-browsing. And in hindsight, I think that was that was an uh, that was paramount for the success of the technology. I think that, and when they they started uh, providing an, an MVC framework, which kind of was an initiative of, of one developer originally, right? And they they offered that as well um, um, as an alternative to the the web forms approach, right? Yeah, and so from then on, um, so these were my my first versions, and uh, uh, the the. The, the more stable and mature the versions got, the more involved they got. And um, I'm still very happily using PHP as well, because it's 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 still a, a great framework, a great language, has evolved also massively during the last uh, 27 years. Um, but uh, still, still love uh, what, what ASP.NET Core is offering. Um, and... Um, Pretty happy with my technology choices from back then, especially if you look at some of the other frameworks that were hip in the late 1990s or in the 2000s. And some of them, uh, they just, uh, you know, cease to exist or just prove to be uh, uh, a, a technology that's, that's not future-proof. Let me put it that way. Yeah, Christian, I, I didn't mean to say you weren't young. I mean, you're definitely younger than Mark and me. So, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? We'll uh, we'll need to talk about that um, in the next episode or something. But uh, you know, for future episodes, you're going to have to shave your head. Uh, I, uh, I I'll consider it. <laughs> There's some serious asymmetry, Christian. <laughs> but but I mean, I, I can't do anything with 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 KI like uh, a mid mid journey. Like, give me Griffin Christian with with a bald head or something. I mean, you get one of those skin caps, you know, skin yeah. caps. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you'll, you'll find something. You'll find something. Nice. Yeah, I I, yeah. I remember back uh, then ASP and then the .NET. Uh, .NET was actually ASP plus is what it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the, the code yeah. name, right? Of, yeah. of ASP and Net. Yeah. But I mean, I would rather call it ASP minus, but uh, you know, ex, ex post, you can always easily say something like that, right? But, yeah. You want to go back to writing VBScript for your program? Uh, but you know, as, as I did uh, a lot of ASP uh, before, I mean, and I, re I, re I, I, I have to give credit where credit is due, right? So I loved ASP. And why did I love ASP? Because that was probably, and I have to be honest here, that was probably last technology that I completely grasped because it was, I think, six objects with 36, if I recall correctly, properties and methods. I knew probably 34 of them, right? So I just knew those things plus the VBScript syntax. That's it. Right? Nowadays, I'm so relying on, on IntelliSense or, or auto-completion and the documentation because I mean, how many how many classes do we have in .NET now? Is it is it five digits something like that? I, I, how how could I how should I uh, even even need to know all of this, right? So um, of course productivity went 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 up <laughs> greatly uh, when I compare the the ASP.NET Core productivity with the uh, with the ASP productivity. Um, from from back in the days, so or even the ASP.NET uh, 
1.0 productivity. But still, I mean, back in the days, I knew everything about the technology. Nowadays, I know what I'm working on and I have to research the rest if um, there's something new. Then that's, that's why I think um, both, both Adam and Mark uh, stressed that before, we are always learning, right? Um, that's, that's why I'm always excited about, uh, about podcasts like this because there's always new perspectives and new things to learn because nowadays it's, not, it's, it's impossible or at least I, I've, I haven't met a person yet who, who could actually pull it off to really know everything in and out about a complex framework or technology. And I mean, especially with yeah. .NET, there are, there are so many different aspects. So I think there will be, will be plenty, plenty of stuff to talk about in the coming months. So Adam, did you actually build anything with the, the 1.0 that you got installed or did it work? Nothing that I could publicly admit that is running in production. <laughs> Let's believe that it never happened. <laughs> did, you, did you find out that there's no master pages in that 1.0? I was actually using some ASP Classic also, I think, when I joined my first company. So that was very old dinosaurish stuff, uh, way older than I used to be at the time. So, uh, so yeah, I was doing some of that, mostly in the maintenance mode, though, but still developing some new screens, adding features for the clients. So, yes, that thing, these things were running. I hope they are not in production anymore. But, well, that was banking finance sector. So... You never know what's actually running behind the scenes, especially that at that time we are using like IBM mindframes. And one of the interesting thing about IBM mainframes is that um, they had completely different character encoding. We're all used to Unicode and they were running Epsetic. Funny thing about Epsetic, I come from Poland and when it comes to currency, which you have typically under digit four on your keyboard, and similarly, in Epsidic, there was like one character thingy that was representing Polish currency. However, this character does the, we were migrating stuff from IBM ZOS mainframe to, let's say, decent Windows-based .NET thing. Hope these things do not work anymore. <laughs> they were migrated to something decent nowadays. <laughs> I mean, isn't it alive? Someone tells you, okay, this is just a prototype, you know, we'll... We'll eventually replace it by something something serious. For me, that's always a warning sign that I have to be super diligent with the uh, technologies and approaches I'm using, because that thing is, will potentially be around for a decade, right? If they, of course, say, "Yeah, you know, we we do it the right way, and uh, we we have to use best of breed and the latest stuff," then unfortunately, chances are that uh, you know this this might see the day of light, but uh, not for long. In this case, you can always take your COBOL code and run it on COBOL.net. I was just going to ask you, has anybody written anything in a none of the main .NET languages like VB, C Sharp, or F Sharp? So I remember COBOL.net being, you know, in the early days they were, they were doing that. And I never did it in .NET. I did it in, in college as a class, but it's still around. I, I, I have an enterprise getting rid of it um, at the moment, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still running, but uh, it's, it's just hard to get people experience with it. And so that's, I think that's, that's yeah. the, 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 the mainstream point uh, I, I previously made, right? So if, if you have something that a lot of people are using, then um, it's maybe easier to, to find some help. Maybe the only exception or 
big exception in the uh, .NET space at the moment, at least. Uh, I, I, please tell me if you disagree. Is uh, F Sharp, which I think is pretty amazing. But still, I think if you compare the number of, of uh, numbers of C sharp developers and F sharp developers, it's it's a it's a huge huge gap, and maybe that gap is is uh, too huge actually. Well, speaking about F sharp, like um, I always miss that actually Scala dropped support for .NET. Like initially, Scala language was supporting both JVM and and the CLR. Uh, they dropped CLR because, well, they couldn't get higher uh, kind of types to work well and generics and all the magical features. Uh, but still, I remember 10 years ago, I wanted to even implement my custom compiler from Scala to .NET platform, but then I hit exactly the same wall. That's it's not that straightforward. That is used to look at the tutorial books. Uh, so, but maybe one day Adam Furmanek's compiler will see the the, the world publicly. Uh, not coming up, not going to happen soon. But anyway, um, F sharp is similar case. I mean. Personally, that's obviously my personal. Or really functional generic programming is what is stopping this language from really getting its prime time. I keep waiting for, uh, hoping for Richard Campbell to have his book finally come out so we can kind of learn these inside stories about the early days of .NET and, and everything along those lines. You know, And I think we had him on the show a couple of years ago when he was writing his book and it's still not ready. I know I listen to his, his podcast on a regular basis and he, he's still working on it, but yeah, so I, I spoke busy, to him uh, a while ago and uh, yeah, um, I, I still, still anticipating that. So we should, we should back him again. So Mark, what, what, well, in the meantime, yeah. in the meantime, you can watch his talk on YouTube uh, about history of the yeah, but still the, the book. I mean, so many interviews and details. I, I know how much how much work has gone into that project. So that I think that that will be will be a great read. But yeah, let let's talk about it when 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 it's there. So Mark, what was your first .NET version? I think it was two thousand and two, okay. uh, and I think it was a one oh final. I think I want to say it's 1.0 is what I think one, it was. One, one, yeah, one, one, two, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, was, we were, I was in uh, Las Vegas in a, an apartment that we rented, and we were rotating developers in and out of that apartment uh, because we were porting uh, Code Rush, which had been written for, for Delphi or Delphi, depending on where you are, uh, over just to, uh, to .NET. And uh, basically, I had uh, had sold uh, uh, Dev Express on the idea that we run an apartment there, and we have devs working there essentially full time, and we also have them working remotely. But they they swap in and out of that location, so uh, I'm there full time, and you know, just pushing everybody really hard. Uh, and and that's uh, that's how we started building Code Rush. And I remember, you know comparing Delphi to C-sharp. To C I remember writing Andrew Heilsberg's name on the whiteboard, and every time I was mad about something that wasn't quite perfect in C-sharp yet, I'd write, I'd write that underneath his name. And I'd be like, here's, you know, we need, we, there, there's, no, uh, there's no static virtual functions in C-sharp. Why not? Why not, Andrews? What's going on? And I remember at one point, Dustin Campbell, who worked for, who's one of those devs, he's actually uh, working for Microsoft now, but uh, he was in there with me, and uh, and we'd always kind of joked about, you know, Anders was on my list, and I was going to go get him. And he's listening to a, a .NET conference live, and Anders is taking questions. And then 
they he hears my voice in the audience asking the question. And Justin's like, oh no, Mark's in the same room with Anders. Oh no, he's gonna get him. But everything's okay. Anders is all right. No, he's not unharmed and uh and we're and we're here. But yeah, that was my that was my first uh experience, right? So right pretty much from the beginning. Um and and you know, I I actually think so. So I've essentially worked with two languages primarily, like lived in two languages, uh, Pascal and C Sharp. And uh, my impression, though, is that the advances that C Sharp, the language itself, has taken in, you see, the last eight years have been really significant, have really changed how you, you can interact with it. Uh, and, and in ways that I think really help developers. So you can write the same code with fewer characters, for example, right? Uh, you can, you can express things in much more simple, easier to read ways of doing that. These are things that were fundamentally changed in the language, right? If you look at how the language starts, when it started, I'm pretty sure there were no generic methods, Nope. Right. Generic methods came, I want to say, three or four years into it, I want to say something like that. Right. Uh, and and so I, I to me, the the fact that they are essentially carefully, the team seems to be carefully reinventing the language almost. Right. Reinventing parts of the language every every few years. Right. They're really I feel like they are that team is led by uh, some of the smartest most introspective developers uh, that I know. I think they're really, really doing an impressive job on the language. So, yeah, as a, as a, as a, as a guy who's sitting in the C-sharp vehicle, I'm loving the new things that are coming in, right? That they keep coming in and the pace that they're coming in at. Yeah, we had Mads Torgerson on uh, one of our shows and we talked about the history of C-sharp and where it's going and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, this, Mads this- is- the pace is really, really picked up. It's almost hard to keep up with what's what's being implemented and what's new. And it's like, okay, do I want to use that or where do I use it and all that kind of stuff. So the pace yeah, is Mads is amazing. That guy is like, you know, one of the, I want to say he's the most one of the most underrated developers there. Nobody knows just how good Mads is, but he's better than everybody thinks. That's kind of where it might that's that's my take on Mads. Mads is really brilliant, smart, and quiet about how brilliant and smart he is, right? So did, did Code Rush start out as a, a personal project, or was it a company that you were working for at that time? No, you know, it was, so I had my own company uh, called Eagle Software, and we created uh, two products. One is called the Component Developer Kit, and the other was called... We called it React, but it was a uh, component testing. Was, they were both f- focused on creating components, custom UI components for Delphi. And so there were just tools that allowed you to, to do common things that you do in building components all the time. Uh, and then I started looking at this idea and playing with this idea of, of making it real easy to integrate design patterns with your code. Right, so that you would say, I want to use this design pattern, and it would find the parts of your code to kind of hook in. Up to that point, I had not used the editor from Borland. I'd used a third-party editor. But I realized that this design patterns tool that I had envisioned was going to really require that you use the editor from Borland. 
And I was like, uh, which is now in Barcadero, but I was like, uh, yeah, their editor is not good. It's, it's really problematic. In order to lay the foundation for creating this design patterns implementing tool, I'm going to have to first fix the editor and, and bring it up to speed. And so Code Rush started as an add-on for Delphi. And, uh, and, and it was essentially a personal product to bring Borland's Delphi up to speed so I could write code as fast as I could think. Because I was, you know, up to this point, I'd always, there'd been this distance between ideas and what I, my fingers are typing out, right? The ideas would be leading and I would be desperately trying to catch up with those ideas. So that's how Code Rush, that's how Code Rush started. I never implemented the design patterns tool. I never ultimately implemented, implemented it. And, and it's, it was kind of like a really big idea uh, that, that, is, that was hard to do. But Code Rush, you know, uh, kind of speaks for itself, it, it, especially when there's a, a, a big discrepancy between the host IDE and what Code Rush can do. Right. And, and in the beginning, that was that discrepancy was large. Um, now, as we're moving forward and you're starting to see AI come in and making suggestions inside Visual Studio, inside Visual Studio, there's, uh, you know, there's areas where Visual Studio is actually getting better than Code Rush in some ways where I'm like, you know, I'm like, OK, well, I don't think we're going to touch that feature because, you know, that's going to take, you know, five people and a lot of time. And Visual Studio has already got a head start. So th they got it. You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's that's how it started. It was basically I was writing Code Rush for me and selling it. So has uh, everybody kind of seen uh, previews of Copilot X? You know, kind of what you're talking about there, having chat GPT right, right in Visual Studio and being able to, you know, analyze your code and hopefully write all my unit tests for me? Yeah, I've not seen that. I've seen Copilot, Copilot and I've seen, you know, the stuff built in. Visual Studio, but I haven't seen what I would call beyond that next gen. I've always thought that next gen version comes from, well, maybe two things. One is more training, right? More training, uh, you know, a broader sense of what's happening, uh, you know, and, and and kind of also, I think, a sense of, of being able to hook in more with contextually with the code around. Um, that's kind of where I, you know, that's kind of where I, I think, I think that's one of the two things for next gen. Uh, and then the second component of it is, is kind of a, I guess what I would describe as a, a contextual kind of hook where you say, I'm going to grab some code and hit a key. And based on what I grab, I want you to infer what I want to do. So it's not just contextually seeing, you know, where, you know, I'm, I'm hitting enter on a line going down to an empty line and, and basing everything on the, what the line that comes before. I want to be able to grab something and say, go for it. And I, I, that's a like, you know, from my perspective, and you know, an open area, an opportunity. Uh, I'm expecting the Visual Studio team to figure that out and get there. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to want to actually try and race them to get there you know, on, the, on that particular piece. But it is, but, but from my perspective, that's huge because you can get greater certainty based on what I select when I say go 
um, with training than I can just by hitting enter on on a on a line and then you guessing what I want to what I what I want to try and do. Okay. So anyway, that's 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 kind of you know future of, of what's coming. But yeah, the the uh, we actually played with Code Rush on this idea of writing test cases for you, and we put some effort in there, no AI effort in it, but um, we were doing things, uh, and I forget exactly what it was, but it was something to the effect of while you were debugging, stepping through the code, seeing the values that were coming in to a method, and then saying, I want to build a test case with these values coming into this method right now. And so it would take those values, it was right, it would create the test case for you. It wouldn't change the code yet because it can't because you're debugging, right? And so it would store all that. And then when you stop debugging, it would generate all the methods for you that you had created during the time. And it was kind of okay. It wasn't brilliant. You know what I mean? But it's it was kind of okay, but it was certainly better. It was better than, you know, having to go do that all yourself. You know, so it's kind of a, you, you really, you know, Getting a good feature is hard, you know, and a good feature, you know, what I, what I mean by a good feature, a good feature that is universally providing value, you know, no harm to anyone, universally providing value, easy to use, generally accepted as, yes, this is the right way to do things now. And it didn't exist before, right? An innovative new feature that's hard hard to do. And, and this description of what we tried to do with the you know, building the test cases for you is kind of like a, it's like a poke into the box of just a, let's poke a stick in the box and see if we can get close to something that's useful. And we kind of do it and we come back and we say, okay, what's going to be useful is something much harder to make than what we tried to do. And so we just kind of left it there. We just kind of said, okay, well, we'll kind of just leave that and we're not going to push too hard in that space. But sometimes like, like I just finished creating a, a feature, um, and I should say too, by the way, the code rush is free. It's not, so I'm not promoting anything right now other than the work, right? But we created a feature um, for jumping to any point on screen in the fewest keystrokes possible. And essentially you can get anywhere on screen in about three or four keystrokes. And, um, and we looked at this problem so hard that we created um, the feature is called jump codes. And what it does, by the way, is it is you, you hit a shortcut and it over every token on screen, it'll put a uh, like a one or two character code, maybe three if you have a really tiny font or something like that, but it'll put codes up there. But we looked at keyboard layouts for QWERTY, Dvorak, and Colmac. And when we put the jump codes up, we make it so that the, the pieces you're likely to hit to go to, for example, the first token on every line, it's only one, generally only one shortcut away. And that line token, that first one is, first of all, we're going to use all the keys on the home key first, on the home row first. So you don't have to move your fingers up one row or down one row to get to it, Right. Um, and so, so we looked, we looked really, really hard at that problem to the point that we said, we're going to need an option that says, what keyboard layout do you have? QWERTY, Dvorak, or Comac? Because it's so important to us, right? We're in this land of what my wife likes to call diminishing returns. 
right? Where you work really hard for just the smallest incremental benefit. But the end result on this whole thing is you get a feature that's kind of, you nod your head when you realize how hard it's the features working to make it easier for you to get there. That sort of thing, right? And that's that's kind of to me, right? I like, I like that's in contrast to the to the to the test case thing where we had this big idea, we put a stab out there, we tried to do it, and we came back and said, okay, you know, it's gonna take a lot more work. And then we can have this maybe little idea, but we put a lot of effort into it, and we come back and we nod our heads and we say, This is it. We've kind of come up with the fastest, most efficient way to move anywhere, you know, in your cup that you can see, any place that you can see. So it's not bad. I mean, up until we start using, you know, vision tracking, which is also another thing that I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm playing with in my mind. How do I get there just by looking at it, right? Reliably, accurately to the character. Right when vision gaze tracking software is not that accurate, right? How do you make it more accurate, right? But these kinds of problems, I love. I love being in the space where we have a problem, and the the, the criteria is fastest, least amount of effort, you know, most efficient. What is the answer to that question? What is optimally the most efficient way to get from point A to point B? I'm just waiting for the days when will be able to plug ChatGPT or Copilot X or whatever into like companies wiki confluence and whatever knowledge base we have so that finally all the internal search engines will like will become obsolete and I'll just ask the bot hey how do I do that and it will be always up to date with all the documentation all the code everything else that's gonna be amazing I love it that's a great idea. Yeah, let's build let's, that. Let's build that. <laughs> yeah, I think for, for I mean many of the of the standard tasks, um, having having one of those systems or a similar one can can be helpful. I mean, that might always be the legal issue, right? So is is the, the code that I mean was generated based on the previous knowledge of the system? Is that somehow licensed? Um, but yeah, that I, I mean, just the test case thing. I I, I love the test case uh, or the test the unit test creation uh, example, right? Because if there's probably one thing in development where the number is lower than it should be, at least in many projects uh, I look at, it's the amount of of unit tests, and you know, depending on the system, it's sometimes trivial, but sometimes really hard. To, to write them, um, but if kind of that burden is 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 done by 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 some software, um, maybe even in interactive way such as um, a Mark laid it out, um, that that just that is just helpful. That could be like a so that I'm I'm excited. That could be like a modern rubber duck kind of thingy that we would be doing TDD with ChatGPT on the side. I mean, ChatGPT generates like next unit test. Obviously, you run the code, it's red, and then you follow RGR, you implement the business code on your own, and then ChatGPT follows with another test for you. Doesn't necessarily need to be JetGPT. We could have something that's you know specific yeah, to yeah. coding. Code GPT. Guys, I just realized we're going to make a million dollars with this, this idea. Yeah. We can't let the show get out. We can't publish the show. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so you see, tune in every, every week, right? Um, that's, it's a million, million dollars to be made. Million dollar idea every show. Every show.
I've always dreamt of a tool where I could just point it at my class. It would detect the interface and it would try every possible combination of inputs into it and try to break it for me. And then I would say, okay, it's, it's okay. I, I got this response from your class. Is that a correct response or not? And if it's not, then you either fix it or tell it that, yeah, that's a correct response. So why do I have to write all these different combinations of unit tests if it could just detect it for me, try every character combination, code combination, null, links, all that kind of stuff, and just try to break it. And if it breaks, then I need to either fix it or you know tell it that, hey, that's what it's supposed to be doing. That's I like that. That's super interesting because one of the things that I've found sometimes in doing unit tests is I'll get I'll find a bug after I've built unit tests and I've you know built 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 a feature and I'll go back to the unit test and I'll realize, oh, I forgot about looking at this particular edge case value to pass in. It's kind of a fundamental idea, right? If I'm gonna expect expecting numbers, what happens when I pass a negative one in, right? If I'm expecting positive ins. And if I forget to write a test case in that that handles that, right, then sometimes that can turn into a bug later on. And I kind of like this idea of this, you know, artificial intelligence entity going in looking at existing unit test cases and saying, oh, hey, here's a here's a, a flag situation where where you might you, you you're passing in one, two, and three, but you're not passing in, you know, max int or whatever, you know, max value for for or negative one. You're not passing in these kinds of things. Do you want me to create those test cases for you? Here they are. Just click add, and I'll just add them for you if you want. Yeah, because, I mean, I know developers, they're writing unit tests just to get unit tests to pass what the known cases are. They're not writing unit right. tests, really, so spending the time to get unit tests for those edge cases or things that might be in, you know, happen that they're not expecting. Yeah. No, it's hard to do, right? Unit tests are often hard to do, right? Sometimes to, to, to facilitate making unit tests, you have to create a more de decoupled architecture or an architecture that allows maybe access in ways that weren't intended so I can go validate internal state, for example, right? So, so it, it, unit tests often require more thought, I think, to the architecture. However, I think your architecture is much more solid at the end of that. It's much more likely to, to you're much more likely to release consistent, high-quality updates again and again if you have a solid foundation right so it's 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 kind of essential but the problem is is that you know nobody i feel like there's two things that planning teams don't allocate enough time for and one of them is unit tests and the second one is discoverability it's just something that that it's i feel like we're, we always now have pressure to answer these questions in a limited amount of time write these tests implement discoverability in some way you know, and we're under pressure. And as a result, I think both of these kind of don't get as much uh, love as, as needed to create a really high quality product. I concur. I concur. Um, well, I, I think we've gone for a good amount of time. And I think people have really got to know uh, the new hosts and hope they're going to enjoy the shows that we've got planned for the future and they'll tune in. So I think we should start uh, wrapping up. All right, so we'll move on to picks. Um, I'll go first so that Christian doesn't steal my pick. 
And <laughs> yeah, so so we actually we have to explain it. Uh, so so Sean and I were talking uh, prior to recording uh, today's episode, and uh, we kind of hinted at each other what our picks were, and it could be that it's the same. So please, Sean, you can go first. Okay, so my pick is going to be the night agent. Ah, oh. <laughs> I I knew it was going to be that because it's so good. It was so good, you know. I I had a hard time getting used to the male main character because he's uh, well. I don't want to spoil that much, and yeah, I I don't want to steal that from you. So yeah, but well, no, after I mean, I it's, a, it's a dual pick to to endure him. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the show. Yeah, yeah. So just kind of a, a little bit of background. It's kind of a, a low level FBI agent that sits at a desk in the bottom of the warehouse and answers the phone in case anything is going to happen. You know, this is all in little previews and, and teasers for the show, so not giving anything away. And then, you know, one day the phone rings and he picks it up and then the adventure starts. It, it kind of reminds me a lot of uh, kind of a Reacher-type style of show, uh, those types of things. So, yeah, but... Uh, you know, we we got into it one day, and we don't typically binge watch shows, but we binge watched this all these shows in two days, and my wife and I, and we both liked it, so we just couldn't we couldn't stop watching. We wanted to find out what happened, so it, it was it's a good. Se- yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, you might like all good. I was just going to ask. It's one season. You got one season yeah, to binge. Yeah. One season. Okay. Yep, and they've already they've already renewed it for season two because it's so popular. And I think it's, uh, is it eight episodes? So it's really, so it's not, not an investment you lot like in, in, the, in the earlier days when you heard, oh, that's a great new show. Okay, five seasons, every season has 24 to 26 episodes, uh, which, you know, is just an, an investment I can't make, right? But yeah, it's eight episodes, each episode, I think it's eight. Was it 10? I think it's 10. No, is it 10? Is it 10? Okay, then, then I'm mistaken. Sorry for that, but... Um, it's uh, every episode is 45 to 60 minutes most of them rather 45 so really it's um it's it's yeah. an investment that uh, is uh, is doable but yeah there will be will be a a second season so yeah it, it was was great great to watch um I, and i think it's already in the uh, netflix top i think netflix uh, has has the distribution rights worldwide and i think it's already in the top 10 uh, for english, english language uh, uh, shows um so uh, highly, highly successful. Yeah. So uh, I my my pick. Uh, I would have had that pick, but I have actually a second pick. A thing I um, I started doing um, a few days ago. Actually, I started rewatching the first three uh, Indiana Jones movies because the trailer for Indiana Jones Five came out, and it was less cringeworthy than I expected it to be. So I think it could be a real solid movie. Um, I love the first three. And, uh, you know, a while ago, I was re-watching From Dusk Till Dawn. And when I watched From Dusk Till Dawn, when it came out, I thought, oh, that's, that's an awesome movie. And Salma Hayek is in there. But apart from that, also great movie, great movie. And I was re-watching it. And, oh, oh, I wouldn't say unbearable, but it didn't age really well, the Indiana Jones movies. 
they aged really well. I mean, I think the the uh, the the first two ones were no, they were all from 1980s, right? 1981, I think, was the first one, and then 84, and then 88, no, 89 was the third one. Yeah. So for the and first they three, they aged really movies, well. Yeah. They are still great movies. Um, I yeah, I have specific that's... thoughts about the fourth one, but let's let's just skip that one. <laughs> um, but I can't I can't uh, say that I watched the second one as much. I do one and three. Yeah, the, the the third one I think is the best one um, because you know just you know of the riddle and it always wants wants uh, makes me want uh, want to go to Petra and you know see see, see where the, the climax takes place, right? Um, yeah, but they age really really well. And um, I mean, did you hear that? Uh, I think and uh, so the 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 movie you like the least of the first three, the Temple of Doom. Wasn't that the movie where um, uh, Ki Kwan um, yes. was playing uh, Shorty and he now won uh, the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor this year? So, yeah, like 40, yeah. 40 years later. Yeah, that's, that's that pretty amazing. Yep. He was also a Goonie. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Which is a, yeah, so a my pick was would be uh, rewatch uh, Indiana Jones so that you have all the backgrounds and understand, you know, all of the cameos and whatever they plan. For Indiana Jones 5, which I think has a worldwide release uh, end of June, twenty twenty three. Okay. All right, Adam. What kind of pick do you have for us? I have something technical. Uh, not watching, binge watching, whatever. So we all probably all know FFmpeg uh, software. Uh, super cool. Can do anything you wish. Crop, convert, reencode, speed things up, slow them down, but. Do you know how to use parameters? You can always ask ChatGPT. But if you want to do it like in a nice UI way, there is a thing which is called, uh, it comes from Pazera software, which is called Free Audio Video Pack. It is like kind of a set of very thin UIs of top, on top of FMPEG that allows you, you know, to pick your uh, settings, encoding, etc., etc. And under the hood, it just calls as an FFmpeg with all the parameters you have. You can also see the command line. So it's, it allows you to quickly convert whatever you need, however you need, et cetera, et cetera. I use it pretty often with like OBS. Uh, so whenever I record um, a video with OBS to FOV um, uh, extension or format, then I can easily convert it with this thingy, merge with whatever else, et cetera, et cetera. So, I recommend that works for me. Hopefully it will work for you as well. All right, Mark, what's your pick? Well, my pick's going to be hard for you kids to uh, get to, I think. But uh, I'll tell you, the best thing I've seen in probably the last two weeks uh, was Hamilton uh, in London uh, at the West End. Uh, it was uh, Victoria Palace is where they're playing. Uh, it was, there, there were probably at least five uh, actors, six actors in there, that each one of them could have held their own as a lead in a uh, in their own play. They could have done it. There were outstanding actors, incredible voices. Uh, I've, I've seen Hamilton and he heard the soundtrack. I've, I, uh, I, I've heard the soundtrack and seen Hamilton on Disney, the recorded version of it, uh, many times. But seeing it in person... There was a higher level of comprehension, understanding what was happening, a, a, a deeper appreciation for the choreography, especially using the, the spinning circle in the middle. Really well done. Uh, it was the best thing I've seen. Uh, we, we recently, I think it was just last weekend, we were 
uh, over Easter weekend, we were uh, in London. We'd seen four different shows. Hamilton stood out uh, far, uh, far and above all the other shows that were there. It was so good, so good. I strong, If you have a chance to see it live, I strongly recommend seeing it. Also, the lead... Uh, I think it was better than Lin-Manuel Miranda um, uh, in a number of ways. Lin-Manuel was great because he wrote it himself and he kind of owned it, but this lead that they had in London was incredible. Really well done. Plus in um, London, I think it's easier to get tickets, right? So they, I think at, and on, on yes. Broadway, it's still really tough or you have dynamic pricing and, and can pay up to four digits. Um. Yikes. Yeah, that might, that's not, that, that was not the situation in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In London, we bought our tickets, I think about at least a month and a half in advance. So it was not, and when I tried to get in, uh, we had tried to get tickets to Hamilton in New York City mm. and that just wasn't happening yeah, without, yeah. like, they were like a year away or something. That's how crazy it was. But it's Still really, is, yeah. really well done. Uh, I appreciated it. My brain was lighting up because the lyrics are coming so fast. Really, really loving what they were doing there. Yeah. I just I just saw yesterday that uh, the Phantom of the Opera is ending after 30 Good. some odd years. Wow. So one of the longest running ones that they had. So but it's going yeah, my to wife wants my wife wants to take me to that. She wants me to go to that. I'm just like, that seems so boring to me. They're singing so slowly. <laughs> I need a rap, Karen. I need a rap. That's what I tell her. But, you know, I don't know. Hopefully she's not going to be all like hearing what you just said, John. And she's going to be like, they're closing. We got to go, Mark. Like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know when the last show is, but it's uh, I, I doubt you probably get tickets uh, at, at the box office anymore. You probably have to get them off the scalpers. Okay, well, that, that's a relief then. I guess we can't go. <laughs> All right. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, if our listeners have questions, they want to reach out to the show, give us feedback, uh, have suggestions of shows, things like that, they can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Stay tuned, guys, and we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye.